Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Nitai Daitel, and I'm a senior program officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I'm thrilled to be speaking with Sylvia Lindner and Melinda Liu for a timely conversation discussing the impact of China's zero COVID policies on China and the world. Briefly, Dr. Lindner is an associate professor at the University of Michigan School of Information and associate director of the Center for Ethics, Society, and Computing. She's also the author of Prototype Nation, China and the Contested Promise of Innovation. Dr. Lintner is currently a visiting scholar at New York University, Shanghai, and a fellow in the Public Intellectuals Program of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Melinda Liu is one of the most experienced foreign correspondents currently living and working in Beijing. She is Newsweek Magazine's Beijing Bureau Chief, a commentator on international relations, and a contributor to foreign policy, Smithsonian Magazines, and others. She has lived and worked in Beijing since November 1998 returning to a city where she lived from 1980 to 1982 as Newsweek's first Beijing bureau chief. Thank you both for joining us here today. We have a short amount of time and a lot to cover, so let's jump right in. Starting with Belinda, I'd like to, to zoom out and establish where we are today to set the scene for our audience. What do things look like now in, in Shanghai as folks have been following the news and, um, and the unfolding situation in, in Beijing? Um, paint that picture for us. Thank you, Nitai. I'm actually physically in Beijing now, but I have a lot of friends in Shanghai. And I, I got to say, between these two cities, I feel very, very fortunate to be in Beijing and not in Shanghai. Shanghai was the first major city to get caught up in this latest surge, and they, they, it really took, took them by surprise. They had many, many cases in a very short period of time. And as a result, the entire city went into lockdown. Some, some areas are still in lockdown and going into their eighth week. And it's, uh, it, there were nightmares in, in the early days. There were food shortages. There were people dragged off to central quarantine facilities. There were apartments broken into by authorities. There was like mass disinfection of, of apartments uh, that people had vacated because they'd, they'd gone into quarantine. And so just like clouds of disinfectant over everything, including antiques, books, you, you name it. And of course, many of us have seen the video of a pet dog that was beaten to death on the street after its parent, uh, after its owner, some of them consider themselves parents, but anyway, its owner was brought into quarantine. Beijing has learned a lesson from the, uh, the violent and vehement negative reactions to, to that, which played out a bit on social media. Much of it was censored, but it got out and it's on YouTube. You know, it's, it's out there. So it's much more surgical. It's much more incremental here. But nonetheless, it's unsettling and uh, the walls feel like they're closing in. Um, somehow, I managed to be really busy and running around, you know, I'm at, I'm at large, but I also feel totally unsettled and claustrophobic all at the same time and bored sometimes all at the same time. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very schizoid existence, uh, you know, the tale of two COVID surges, Beijing and Shanghai. 
certainly. And so turning to Sylvia, you know, currently outside of outside of the major cities, outside of Shanghai at the moment, what's the situation looking like in the rest of China? How are folks outside these, you know, the the, the tier one cities viewing uh, the urban situation? Yeah, thank you, Nitai, for that question. So I was very lucky to have left Shanghai just a couple of days before its lockdown went into full effect and have been traveling in Yunnan since uh, for the last uh, several weeks. First uh, in the south, Qinghong, Myanmar border, where I was actually in quarantine then uh, for 12 days and then traveled north, uh, Shangri-La and now Dali. And I've had many conversations with people from all corners of, of life here and across class from the DD driver all the way to the hotel and restaurant owner to the waiter, um, everyone is really concerned about the economic slowdown um, that has really shaped everyday life here. So it's really affecting everyone here. So, and this, this was really um, fascinating experience because it seemed like I had escaped the Shanghai lockdown and yet I hadn't escaped that because the lockdown lockdown of this major city had clearly reached in terms of its economic impact quite remote corners of the country uh, in terms of tourism, in terms of travel restrictions. And so there's really a direct impact, you could say, of the Shanghai lockdown in the southwest of China, but also I've, I'm still in conversations with people also in Guangdong, where I've been conducting research over the last 10 years, and then people feel it there as well, right? Um, the other interesting thing, uh, many conversations that I've had with people um, have revolved around how there is actually fairly little sympathy uh, for people locked down in Shanghai. So many of you, I'm sure, remember that in the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, around the Wuhan lockdown, there was really a pervasive sense of being in this together and people sort of supporting one another. Um, and some of this was, of course, documented in the diaries by Fang Fang and many others, or even most recently, Guo Bin Yang's um, uh, book on the topic has covered some of this as well. And I was really surprised that this kind of sympathy for people in Shanghai is not present at all. So people really are sort of calling out Shanghainese for the sort of elitist attitude before this current lockdown. And, and so that's, that's a common reaction to hear as well, where people are on the one end of a, you know, worried about the, the bigger economic impact all of this has for the country as a whole. There's at the same time also this attitude of saying, well, Shanghai people should just deal with that and get over it. <laughs> that's been quite interesting to witness. That, that Wuhan spirit of the, early, of the early 2020 is certainly, um, we're, in, we're in a different place uh, two years later. Um, so uh, we've seen on social media first, you know, first, you know, uh, short moments that are then potentially scrubbed away. Um, the um, some videos with folks uh, expressing their their discontent um, and the the challenges of assessing public opinion in China are um, are known. Can you either give us a sense of you know your your pulse of public opinion at the moment among the folks that you interact with? How significant is this state of discontent with? you know, the, the current state of, of affairs. We go to Melinda. Right. Um, I think in China, public opinion does matter. Sometimes it matters in ways that you don't expect, but it still matters. And especially it matters this year because this these surges of, of COVID in China just happen to be coinciding with a very delicate political 
progression of events, um, which are, you know, in domestic political progression events, uh, which have been very much kind of put people on edge because you've also got the war war in Ukraine, which is, you know, so you put if you put together the pandemic, the war, and the delicate politics, it's like a perfect storm of what a Chinese leadership would not want to happen at, at all at the same time. Uh, the domestic politics will, uh, people expect, will come culminate in a uh, nationwide party congress in, in the autumn at which uh, uh, President and head, uh, party head Xi Jinping is expected to um, do away with um, the, the uh, normally accepted term limits, um, two terms, and hang on uh, for another term and maybe longer um, as, as head of the country. He, he's both the president and the head of the party. Um, there's even some talk that he might take the title of chairman. Uh, which hasn't, which only Mao had had. So this is not what he wanted to see. This is not what his team wanted to see. And um, I think the the combination of political infighting, which would have been happening had even under normal conditions, without a war, without a pandemic, without an economic downturn, which I haven't even, you know, that's also very very serious. Um, it means that every little thing that that can be criticized and then is criticized on social media everyone's wondering like why is that you know why is that criticism happening is it really that people just ordinary people talking or is there something behind it is there some factional infighting for which this little thing is actually a really big thing and of course it's opaque so nobody really very few people really know those who know don't talk those who are talking don't really know. So um, I think that's why public opinion, uh, we, we, we shouldn't be just ignoring it. You know, I, I, yeah, obviously in normal times, you've got like one protest in one city about something that might not be able to spread beyond provincial borders. That's not usually, you know, a, a, a game changing thing. But when it's now and when it's pandemic, which is affecting the, the entire nation, um, people shouldn't be ignoring it, and they're not ignoring it. And that's what makes it important. When you both set the scene, you talked about the economic anxieties, those economic impacts that folks around the country are, are, are beginning to feel. And, and the, the Chinese economy already, as folks are saying, um, experts are saying, is in its most fragile state in the last 30 years, continues to bear the brunt of this crisis. Sylvia, as you mentioned, you, you've spent over 10 years conducting research in, in the um, ethnographic research in Guangdong and, and factory owners and the kind of uh, um, the way that uh, China engages with the world um, and its export-driven economy. Could you talk a little bit about how that economic, the economic impact is being felt uh, both domestically as far as migrant workers and college graduates are, are feeling the, the anemic job market as well as these international ripples and, and supply chains that, um, that are affecting us here in the U.S. and around the world? Yeah, so I really felt this economic impact and how people are experiencing it quite viscerally traveling uh, in Yunnan over the last week. So every DD driver complains about the loss of business. Um, some of these drivers sustain themselves actually by returning to some of their family businesses in agriculture and being kind of self-sustaining and kind of holding off to make money until later. 
and streets that are otherwise bustling with visitors and tourists are completely empty. It's a very eerie feel actually to many of these of these cities here in the province. Um, uh, many restaurants and shops are closed and often I'm like uh, one of the few people going into one of these establishments and um, there's some improvement now recently over the last week uh, here in Dali you see uh, bigger tourist groups arriving again but overall the the the, the city still feels like it's kind of in, the, in this hold and uh, I th the same is happening with uh, some of my contacts in in Guangdong where there's this kind of sense of holding off and waiting things out and and people being very very worried about what this means in the long term the one thing that I thought I might share um, to also give sort of a sense of a, um, a, a public impression of this current state of affairs that maybe isn't sort of this typical image we have. Um, I've been doing research more recently in very rural parts of China. So not just in Yunnan, but also in Jiangxi province and in, in, in rural Guangdong actually, following a young generation of cosmopolitan Chinese who decide to leave the busy city life behind and go to rural China. So they're interested in eco-farming and sustainable living, even in spiritual practices. And I've been in touch with all of them while I'm also traveling in Yunnan and I've met some of people who do projects like this here and they are quite content. You could describe them as, as part of this broader sort of inwards turn of a younger generation that talks about Tio Tio Leo and the sort of overwork and exhaustion, the tech industry. They, many of them have international degrees, even from America and the tech industry, and they purposefully leave that behind. And their work in these very rural parts where they've set uh, up eco-farming communities and alternative educational programs, their work has been very little, has impacted, been impacted hardly at all. So that's in stark contrast to my prior contacts in the global electronics uh, production industries and supply chains or even in these touristy kind of locations here in Yunnan so two very different experience with this younger generation who works in these kinds of rural parts and experiments with alternative way alternative ways of living um, they're kind of feeling even affirmed that this was a good decision right that rural China is not only safe in comparison to to the United States but it's also economically, in the long run, profitable for them, profitable for them to do that. Fascinating, fascinating. Looking forward to, to hearing more about your research. Um, so, so going to Melinda, I wonder if you could speak about in, in your foreign policy piece really did address the, the longer term, or potential longer term collateral damage um, that uh, economically that the, the Chinese economy is going to be, be feeling waves of this, the, the change in the shift in the overall business environment with this lack of of predictability um, as uh, these oh, so many downstream effects will continue to ripple across the global economy for for years to come. That's right. And um, I think we're going to be seeing an exodus of, um, you know, when it's possible, uh, possibly a, a bit of a brain drain. Um, right now, if you're Chinese and you were saying, I don't want to be here uh, and I can go to, you know, I can go to university in X place in, in the West. Well, no, you can't because the government for Chinese people has already said you must strictly limit your overseas travel. Tourism is not allowed. 
um, you've got to have a really good reason to go, you know, maybe, you know, an elderly parent needs medical attention or you're attending a funeral or something like that. But it's, you've got to have a good, a good, um, a good reason to be, to be allowed to go. And I know I have many Chinese friends who say, well, I was going to go visit so-and-so or do X, and now I don't think I can go. The other category are, um, couples of which there's one expat and one Chinese spouse. And again, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to split up and travel separately just because, you know, so you don't, you know, those people are not able to go. If you're an expat, however, there, there are a lot of people who've just had it and they are leaving. And then one of the things that made me so kind of schizoid in recent weeks is that um, I've actually been helping uh, move and pack and store and sell and buy and 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 dispose of uh, belongings of very good friends who've decided to call it quits. Some of them are leaving China for good. Others are leaving for at least a year. Some the one guy says he's going to leave for five years at, at least. Um, and these are people. Many of them have been here for many many years. And it, this is just the last straw. Now, it's not even easy for them. Flights are getting constantly canceled. Um, one of the bands, you know, there, there are many band activities in Beijing. One of the band activities is moving house. So if you wanted to move your house into storage or sell all the stuff or ship it out, um, good luck with that. Um, it, it, it's not that easy, but there's definitely exodus of individual expats. Okay, now if you're if you're a Chinese citizen, um, well educated, well employed, you might say, "Who cares? We don't need expats anymore." You know, I I was here in the '80s, as as you mentioned in your introduction. Um, definitely, the feeling then was Westerners are very welcome. There was almost a sense of Chinese people needing them more than the Westerners needed the Chinese. Well, that has completely changed in the opposite direction now. Um, the assumption is that Westerners need Chinese more than the Chinese need them. And okay, so what's the big deal? You know, individual expats leave if their companies stay, if their companies employ Chinese nationals to do the top jobs, isn't that good? And yes, that could be good if they're qualified people. But you don't want to have a hermit kingdom, you know, we, we, we have one already. We know what that was, what that's like. That's North Korea. Um, the head of the EU Chamber of Commerce, Jorg Vutka, he, he actually has um, put together a number of studies, one, some of them very downbeat, talking about market exit by um, in, in not only individuals, but actual uh, companies. And he thinks that, uh, you know, a number of expats in the community of any major city um, make it more dynamic, make, make it more creative, make it more innovative, make it more entrepreneurial, and make it more global. Um, to have those people leaving makes it less so on all those counts. And, and I think that that would be uh, unfortunate, uh, not just for the expats who are leaving, but for China. I think it's a bad thing that um, so many expats are leaving. Beijing and Shanghai are hemorrhaging expats. And that's, 
you know, those, these are only the, the people who manage to find a way out. When things kind of get a little bit more normal, we might see many, many more. So switching tack, um, as we think about you know, this, um, the, at the end of the day, we pay a lot of attention to the political and economic risks, as we mentioned. At the end of the day, this is still very much a public health crisis. Um, and um, the, according to a study released earlier this month by Fudan University, China risks a, quote, tsunami of infections if it relaxes its COVID restrictions with as many as 1.6 million deaths, primarily among the elderly. More than 130 million Chinese age 60 and above are either unvaccinated or have refused or received fewer than three doses, which puts them at greater danger of developing severe COVID systems or even death if they contract the virus. So um, why is this still the case? You know, why won't the elderly get vaccinated? Why hasn't the government made more of an effort to change this situation? Um, do either of you have any any idea about these very hard questions that we don't know, certainly don't have absolute answers for? Uh, Sylvia, did you, did you, I, I, I do, I, I have some thoughts, but why don't you go first and, um, and then I'll follow up. Sure, I just, I just have a quick thought because I was just reading this report that came out by Taishin Global early May, um, which asked exactly these questions, right? Like why vaccination rates amongst the elderly are still so low. And what was most interesting to me in that report, what stood out was that there's high variation amongst vaccination rates amongst, between the provinces. So for instance, I think like Jiangxi and Anhui, people over 60, the vaccination rate actually exceeds 90% as the National Health Commission reports that, which I was surprised by, versus then uh, Shanghai, Beijing and Guangzhou is not even reported. And what the report then also mentioned is that um, one of the key reasons why elderly still don't get vaccinated is um, that they're still not convinced that they need the vaccines, right? That they believe they have, some believe that they have some insider knowledge that prepares them due to their own um, prior work experiences or sort of their, their networks. Um, and many also cite low infection rates. So there is no need to risk it. And then many people associate the vaccines with a certain level, many elderly associated with, according to this report, a certain uh, level of risk, right? Perceived risks, um, adverse side effects. Um, so I think that report did a really good job explaining it. Um, I think it will be key for for China's exit strategy because you mentioned it briefly as well, right? To um, increase and improve the information campaign and, and improve vaccines amongst the elderly, amongst other things like therapeutics for treatments as well as the continuous social management to not allow these, the, these, these waves to get too big. And one of the things that this is not per se sort of tied to the elderly, but one of the things that I think will continuously happen over the next month and even years is this data-driven governance and experimentation with techno-driven governance that we have seen, especially in Shanghai, right? To manage these these COVID waves over over the next over the next months, and I'm happy to talk about that a little bit later. But I'm curious what Melinda has to say about the vaccines amongst the elderly. If there's any other insights, <laughs> right? Um, I actually I, I totally agree with you, and um, I I see like again several things conspiring together to create this weird situation because. In my, in my conversation with, uh, again, with Jörg Wicke, the, the head of the EU Chamber of Commerce, you know, he was like, you know, why, 
why can't China just um, use some of the mRNA vaccines that have been created in the largely in the West, which are proven to be uh, more effective than some of the Chinese only derived vaccines? Okay, so there's okay, so there's number one, there's a, 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 there appears to be a certain level of vaccine nationalism going on in China, where yes, they want people to be vaccinated, but they want them to be vaccinated with Chinese vaccines. They're a little bit suspicious about um, foreign vaccines, and they it's also not a good look. You know, here's China. They're great. They're strong. They're up and coming. They're going to rule the world. You know their vaccines should be the ones that Chinese people are taking. Fine, except mRNA vaccines in light of the current Omicron variant seem to be slightly more effective than the vaccines that the Chinese developed, Sinopharm and Sinovac type vaccines, or at least more effective when, when used as a booster for the other vaccines. In other words, if you you know, I, I got I got a Sinopharm vaccination because I had no other choice, but I'm like looking <laughs> looking around for where I can get a Pfizer jab. Uh, uh, I've had one booster. It, for my next booster, I, why not get a Pfizer jab? It appears that the combination is gives you is stronger, um, and even if it's only an appearance, you know, why not? You know, if you can if you. If you <laughs> If they're all vaccines, why not, you know, why not get what the combination you want? But uh, mRNA vaccines are not available to the general public in, in China. The second thing is um, there have been scandals in the past, medical scandals, that would lead some Chinese to be a little skeptical of official shots, inoculations. There have been bad, bad vaccinations. There have been... Um, uh, overcharging scandals. So there is there is a sort of ingrained, uh, really, you know, is it, is this really going to be good for me? And then the next thing has to do with an age thing. If you're really that old, like 80 years old, 90 years old, you know, of course, you, you've probably got pre-existing conditions anyway. Your immunity is probably might be compromised. And so even the flu could kill you much less um, the Omicron variant. Um, but in addition to that, these seniors actually had experiences with plagues and epidemics previously. I mean, some of them would have would have seen known about the plague and cholera that broke out during World War II. Some of it, some of it initiated by Japanese biological warfare. Um, and this wasn't even a communist thing. The, the Kuomintang government also tried to quarantine and lock people in and keep people from traveling. And they just, but they couldn't, they weren't quite effective and people just ran away. And I've been in parts of Zhejiang province where literally, you know, the plague was breaking out in, in a place called Jinghua um, because uh, Japanese soldiers had unleashed, um, had un, uh, had spread some some viruses there through through clothes and well through wells actually well water food and other things they left around and Chinese were starving so they ate that stuff and touched those things and then they became sick and 
the KMT said, okay, everyone, you got to stay, in, you got to stay where you are. And they tried to force them to stay in their houses and things. And immediately everyone just tried to escape. And one guy ran home to Chuzhou, which is in Western Zhejiang, and that city got decimated. And even, even 10 years ago, parts of the downtown were just these beautiful family clan halls unused because the entire families had been wiped out by these epidemics. So they, you know, these guys know, know what epidemics are and they've had bad experiences with quarantine. So, so they tried to evade them. And then the other thing is, which is the saddest thing of all, and, and Sylvia, this is so interesting to hear you talk about the tech. It's not just the vaccine itself. In order for you to be able to prove you've been vaccinated, you've got to be pretty much, you've got to be able to own and know how to manipulate a smartphone. And I literally, just yesterday, I met a guy who's, he's not even that old. I mean, he's like 70 something. And um, he's got a dumb phone, but he doesn't have a smartphone. And even though he regularly goes to get tested and everything else, the guy can't go very far from his village because in order to go anywhere now, you've got to be able to show a, an app on your smartphone that proves you're negative, you know, COVID negative, and that you've had a test within 48 hours um, and it you know goes ding and it's green. And if it's yellow or red, you just can't go anywhere. And so, you know, he was gonna, he was, he, he, he was talking to me about, he had a propane gas tank that he used to cook in his kitchen. And he was saying, well, it ran out of gas. And, you know, now, now I need to go and get it, exchange it for an empty tank for a full tank, but I can't get into that store because I don't have a smartphone. Right. And so, you know, like, all right, so then what happens? Well, then you've got to get a relative to help you or a friend to help you. And then the whole Guanxi thing comes in. Yeah. How many people are actually evading, you know, pandemic requirements because they've got a friend of a friend with a nephew who, yeah, you know, can help you do something. Yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's a digital divide right. uh, by age and also probably by geography. I think rural areas are much more likely to have this type of person because you know they don't need to go to a grocery store they can they just pick cherries off a tree apples chickens you know absolutely yeah right absolutely. so sylvia i wanted to just pivot one last sorry melinda just we have we're running yeah, out of sure. time and i want to uh get to the role of technology and innovation that and the, uh, has been you know the application of these lockdowns in the COVID era how sylvia you know the you know or how and if you know the advanced surveillance tools that have been deployed in the name of countering COVID, how do you think those will persist beyond uh you know the post into the post COVID world you know, when it when it does arrive and this will be our last question Yeah, no, it's such an important question. Uh, so I, I really think that uh, what we've seen uh, currently with uh, what Melinda was just describing, using various forms of QR codes and apps and uh, what I typically refer to as China's techno governance, you know, it, it's really been a test basically for how China will expand outwards from this current application of data-driven technology to managing the population more broadly. So. 
you've seen these various apps being used for management of urban life, the movement of people, but also applying more recently, and this is what I've seen a lot also in these more rural agricultural contexts, using data-driven technologies or using sensor technology, right? And, and not just these apps, but these apps in combination with various forms of hardware, and what is often referred to as uh, in Chinese, the sort of digitization um, of existing both various forms of life in China, social life, but also production, right? Agricultural production. So I think we really see currently this sort of test, like the, the lockdowns are, are kind of like a test, a laboratory for how these technologies might scale more broadly. And, you know, Chinese in, in administrative apparatuses tend to not go away. <laughs> So apparatuses of, of, of having people managed via apps all the way from the arrival in the city uh, to, you know, reporting your, your status um, or contact tracing for COVID, right, is really an enormous administrative apparatus that I think will stay with us for, for, a, long for a long time. And Shanghai, of course, was particularly interesting here because it always sort of position itself as being sort of the leader in these kind of data-driven experiments over the last two years, right? Shanghai was sort of the city of pride to um, have managed, to have managed um, COVID really well, right? And it was really interesting for me to experience when I was still in Shanghai before coming to Yunnan, how the city went from this period of partial lockdowns grid management, right, where particular streets, Tiadao uh, or Chuwei Hui were managed um, based on case numbers. And, and this was presented as providing a nimble data-driven approach to a, a dynamic zero COVID, right? And then this fell apart, of course, as we all know, and as Melinda was talking about it earlier, right? But despite this messiness um, that we've seen in Shanghai, uh, we have seen so much additional, or because of that messiness, I guess, and because of that socio-technical breakdown, we've seen much experimentation with new apps coming um, into, into the life of people. So I know from my colleagues in computer science at various Chinese universities that students and faculty are pro uh, prototyping their own apps that are used specifically for each campus, for instance. And of course, all of us know that in addition to Tiankang Ma, the health QR code, there was also Tiankang Yun and Hesuan Ma, sort of the, the, the app specifically for the test, right? So there, were, there was an ecosystem of apps, right? That sort of popped up and then some of them didn't really work very well or they didn't work for the experts or for the elderly who couldn't use, right? And so all of this technological infrastructure required huge amounts of labor, right? The only way of making all of that work, even though it was presented as tech, high tech, was a huge labor force, not only of the uh, frontline workers, but also volunteer workers, many of whom are women. So I talked with many of the women working in, in my immediate compound in Shanghai, but also outside a lot of women helping to feed these systems with data, right? And, and I think that's too something that we will see continuously after uh, this, this uh, experience with lockdowns. I think these systems will stay and the labor necessary to make them work will also be required later on. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, we're afraid we've run out of time. There's still so much we'd love to, to speak about and, and dive into. And I guess we'll just have to uh, 
continue to pay attention to your work, um, uh, both Melinda and Sylvia, as you um, uh, continue to live through the, the Omicron wave in, in China. On behalf of the National Committee, thank you for, for joining us today uh, in conversation. It certainly provided me with a lot to think about and um, an additional texture and context to so much that um, doesn't always get through uh, to, to us here in, uh, in the United States. And thanks to our audience. We look forward to uh, having you join us at a National Committee program uh, in the future. Have a great day. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.